The Alaska Powerline podcast is generously supported by GenPack. As a stocking electric utility distributor, GenPack has been taking care of customers in the Pacific Northwest since 1965. With a strong customer focus and dedicated sales staff, they have built lasting relationships by providing quality products with value-added services. Now with a new Anchorage warehouse and a dedicated Alaska sales and support team, GenPack is ready to take care of their Alaska customers for years to come. Visit them at www.genpack.com for more information. GenPack, taking care of our customers since 1965. Welcome to Alaska Powerline, the podcast of Alaska Power Association, the statewide trade association for electric utilities in Alaska. On Alaska Powerline, we talk about issues facing Alaska's electric utilities, interview a wide range of guests, and demystify what it takes to provide power in the last frontier. Well, welcome back to the Alaska Powerline podcast. I'm Michael Ravito, Deputy Director of Alaska Power Association, and we're excited today to welcome our guest, Mr. Alec Mesdag, President and CEO of Alaska Electric Light and Power, or AELMP, in Juneau. Alec, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. So the number of EVs in Alaska, by EVs we mean electric vehicles, has been growing over the years. And I know a lot of motorists out on the roads might see Teslas or other sorts of EVs uh, driving all over the place. But perhaps Juno might be ground zero for EVs in Alaska. And that means a lot of different things for electric utilities that provide the power to keep those EVs charged up. And Alec, I think one interesting thing before we start, actually, we should we should swing back and talk about ALMP real quick. Um, can you tell us, ALP is quite old as a utility goes, and your generation mix is really interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about ALMP and how you get your power? Sure, yeah. ALMP was founded in 1893, so 130 years old this year. And right now, we get our power from five different hydroelectric plants. So we're about 99.7% hydro. Uh, we do have a standby diesel generation system that we do our maintenance runs on and things like that. So we're not 100% hydro, but uh, as one of our former generation engineers used to say, we're you know 99% hydro or 100% hydro 99% of the time. And so our uh, five plants, you know, three of them are lake tap projects. Uh, where there's just a hole drilled into the side of an alpine lake and then water carried down to the plant at sea level. And we have one dam storage project that was built by the Alaska Gas and Mining Company in between 1912 and 1916. And then one little run of the river project uh, that's over 100, year old, 100 years old also. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting actually because ALMP, and I think, is it the oldest electric utility in the state of Alaska? You know, I'm not sure about that. It might be. Um, it's uh, it certainly has been around for quite a long time. And it kind of shows the long duration of hydro. I mean, some of your projects, I think, are over. I mean, now, obviously, they're over 100 years old. So it really kind of shows the power that hydro is a long-lasting, stable, good supply of power. Yeah, and it, it takes work to keep them going for sure. There's a lot of reinvestment in the plant over the years. Uh, this year, we're doing a big project on one of our plants. It's uh, the Annex Creek project. So this is another plant that was built by the Alaska Gas and Mining Company. And uh, this one was between 1913 and 1917. The penstock for that plant is the original one that's been sitting, you know, 32 inch, I think. 
hand riveted steel penstock that's been sitting in a rainforest for over 100 years. We're just replacing uh, one half of it this year and one half next year. That's quality craftsmanship. It kind of speaks to the uh, even back then in those days, although, you know, I mean, it was, was quite a long time ago. They still had the ingenuity and the ability to build projects that last for generations. Absolutely. So onto the theme of today's podcast, which is electric vehicles. Um, they, you know, last time I was in Juneau, I definitely saw my fair share of EVs driving around. And it kind of makes sense there because as Alaskan communities go, Juneau only has so many road miles. And so an EV makes sense. And, and is that how you're seeing it down there in Juneau with the electric vehicles that people drive? Yeah, for sure. So we have, again, a pretty cheap resource. So low cost electricity uh, from a clean source of power. And you can't drive to and from Juno. So we have a contained isolated road system to go along with our isolated electric system. So if you don't have range anxiety, we've got a, a nice clean resource. We don't get too cold in the wintertime. We don't get too hot in the summertime. So it works out uh, really well for, for people who are interested in buying an EV. This is a great market to do it in. Now, you have an EV yourself that you and your family drive around. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We, uh, My wife and I uh, bought a Bolt EUV last summer, and my wife says it's her favorite favorite car she's ever had. Well, talk about that a little bit, if you, if you don't mind, for those of us who aren't yet EV drivers. I mean, what's what's the what's the difference besides the obvious things with an EV compared to the old gas vehicles? Well, one of the things, one of the big things is just the, the low cost of driving around. So we... Um, I think we pay something on the order of two cents a mile to drive that car around Juno compared to something more like 16 cents a mile for a 25 mile per gallon car. So it's uh, significantly less expensive. It's less polluting. There's less regular maintenance has to be done, right? No oil changes. Uh, you never have to stop at a gas station and they're zippy little cars too. So it's uh, it's really a convenient, low cost, you know, kind of less guilt way to drive around. And, and, and as you mentioned, also, when you plug in your EV at home or at work, that's being powered by carbon-free hydropower. So it's uh, there's a, an environmental benefit there all around, too. Absolutely. Well, as the uh, CEO of the utility there, though, you must be thinking as more EVs come onto the system over the years. And I know there, you know, there's definitely folks out there who are pushing for and hoping for the entire car fleet, I guess, to be electric vehicles at some point in the future. How do you look at that as an electric utility that has to have all these cars plugging in at some point, either throughout the day and then definitely at night? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of things to think about there. Uh, AOMP kind of got into thinking about electric vehicles back around 2010 when the company filed for an experimental off-peak electric vehicle rate schedule. So the idea there was to uh, give a $1,000 rebate to customers who installed an EV charging station at home that could be separately metered. And uh, there were some you know, minimum standards for what kind of vehicle they had to have in order to participate in the program. So that was filed in 2010, became effective at the start of 2011. And there was a three-year enrollment window. We actually only had, I think, two cars enrolled right up into right up until the end of 2013 when uh, a bunch of folks started buying nissan leafs and bringing them to town so we filled up our 10 slots right before the deadline that three-year enrollment window and then we monitored those vehicles for three years 
At the end of that three years, we decided to go ahead and convert that experimental rate schedule or request to convert that experimental rate schedule into a permanent schedule. And um, using the information that we'd gathered during that, that three-year period of uh, metering the usage by those uh, vehicle owners. So and that, you were that worked out well. So yeah, so so you were looking for information from these um, those vehicles who took advantage of that program, and what sort of um, information exactly were you trying to get out of that that data, and and how did you use that going into the future? Yeah, so one of the things about electric vehicles is the charging stations use quite a bit of power. So in Juno, uh, the average home, you know, most single family homes are you know are heated with uh, heating oil but then have an electric resistance hot water tank. And so the average demand of that home to the system is a little over six kilowatts. And a charging station for an electric vehicle is typically somewhere around six to eight kilowatts right now. Uh, so that's kind of the slightly higher power level two charging station at 240 volts. And so that's like adding a new home to the system if that were to sit on top of that home's existing peak. So what ALMP was looking at was what if we provided a price signal for people to just charge when we have some extra extra capacity in the system at night. And that's what we were looking at in the data was how well did people uh, choose to or how well do they follow up with you know, preferentially charging at night in order to receive a lower rate for the energy that they put into their vehicle. And how how did that go? I mean, how has that played out over the uh, over the time since that happened? Has that really come to pass? Yeah. So what we saw with the experimental rate schedule was that about seventy percent of the charging was done at night, and th you know the rest during the day. So the our nighttime hours during that uh, during that experimental rate was were ten p.m. to seven a.m. We actually shortened that a little bit to 5 a.m. So now there's a seven hour window from 10 p.m. to, to 5 a.m. when people pay a lower rate for energy delivered to their vehicle. And the reason we did that actually was we found that a lot of folks, especially if they parked outside, they would program their vehicle to preheat in the morning before they left for work. And rather than have people, you know, essentially applying a heating load on top of our morning peak, at a lower rate, we didn't want to incentivize that type of that was not really the intent of the incentive, right? So we shifted that uh, period back a little bit to make it less likely to 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 occur. And now we don't see actually quite as high as 70% of the charging at night of the vehicles where we can we can monitor both their daytime and nighttime charging hours. And I think that's probably because uh, some owners aren't very good at programming their vehicles. So that's the mechanism by which you get your vehicle to to start charging, you know, to charge during that off peak window. So I think that there's a little bit of a gap sometimes in people's knowledge or ability about how to program their vehicle correctly so that it is charging during the low cost hours. Yeah, it's kind of one of the fascinating technological advantages of an electric vehicle with, you know, you often you just have, have an app, you can schedule what you want your vehicle to do. And of course, when it's heating up, um, it's not puffing as they say around here in anchorage right it's not throwing emissions into the air because it's just simply using that battery to heat up i did have a question on, on the technical side you know we when we talk about electric utilities there's the, the customer side of the meter and the utility side of the meter and you know 
stuff that's done inside the home, for instance, that's really on the customer side of the meter. So the electric utility um, doesn't have anything to do with the uh, wiring inside the home. Is that similar with a, a charging station? If a homeowner was to upgrade to a level two charging station, is that all considered to be the customer side of the meter? And the, or does the electric utility have any part in, in upgrading any sort of charging facility inside a person's home? Well, we... Uh- Yes and no. So yes, that is considered the customer side of the meter, right? Those that's customer owned equipment. And so for our rate schedule, for instance, the off-peak rate schedule, the homeowner goes installs the circuit to supply the charging station, and they may either own their own charging station or they can rent equipment from us that just plugs in and already has the meter. It's an assembly that already has the meter attached to the charging station. And when people use that plug-in equipment that we provide, uh, which we rent out essentially for a monthly fee at about $11 a month, um, then all the customer has to do is install that circuit to a receptacle that can that, where they can plug in this AOMP-owned equipment. And so we do have this situation where sometimes we have AOMP-owned equipment inside a customer's garage or something, for instance. And what, the reason that we allow that when it's just that plug-in equipment is if they do have a problem, then all they wind up doing is they call us, we send someone out to go ahead and drop off. We ask them to set their equipment outside. We send someone to go drop off and we just swap them out right there and then they can go hang up the new equipment. And then we'll bring it back, troubleshoot it and see what's going on. That doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's really convenient to have it as a plug-in equipment. For people who use their own equipment, we require them to run that circuit to an exterior location where the meter base is going to be located where so that we can separately meter the energy that's delivered to the vehicle. Interesting. So it seems like there's definitely an advantage for um, from uh, to renting one from the utility and almost like another service of ALMP to your customers that they have that option. That's been a very popular program for us. The most of the people who are participating in that off-peak electric vehicle rate schedule are doing it with the equipment that they rent from ALMP. And a big part of that seems to be that, you know, and one of the things we found when when we were starting to see an explosion of electric vehicle ownership in Juno around, especially around 2015 to 2017, the uh, a lot of folks would buy the vehicle, they would just call down to a dealership in Washington. And there were a couple of them down there that got really good at taking orders for Nissan Leafs that were coming off of a three-year lease, and they would deliver them to the barge or to the ferry and ship them up to Juno. So a lot of folks were just buying these vehicles because they had, you know, they had a friend who had gotten one and was really thrilled with it. So they buy them sight unseen a lot of times, they get shipped up here, and then they call the utility and ask, how do I charge this thing? And so it became one of those things, it was really obvious that there was a People don't really want to have to learn about charging, how it works, how to do it. They wanted it to be fairly easy. And this was one of those ways that we can make it easier for folks to get a high power charger. Yeah, that's we at APA like to say the electric utility is usually always the expert on electric stuff. And so it's it's good to start with them sometimes, even if they uh, even if it's not something that the electric utility necessarily can do inside your home, they can at least point you in the right direction to somebody who can. So let's talk a little bit about that explosion of EVs. I mean, what do you see now? You've been at ALMP quite a while, and, and what are you seeing in terms of EVs on your system? I mean, has there been a significantly noticeable increase? Um, is it, Are you able to tell how much load is going to electric vehicles at certain times of the day? Is that possible to see? 
Well, we can certainly see it for the folks who participate in our rate schedule, which is still only, oh, I don't know, maybe 25% of the EV drivers in Juneau are participating in the rate schedule. Maybe it's a little bit higher percentage than that. But uh, so we, um, you know, when we see those those folks, because we're metering their off-peak usage uh, separately, you know, we definitely see that there's a lot that come on right at the start hour of that off-peak period. So the whole bunch of vehicles that all start charging right at the same time. And my guess is that over time, we'll have to try to find a slightly more sophisticated way to manage that off-peak period because, you know, even though right now it's not at a level that that has an impact on our system, if we have 20,000 passenger vehicles in Juneau and all of them start charging right at 10 p.m., that that would be a problem. So, so we know that over time, we're going to have to develop a more sophisticated way to encourage um, load diversity for electric vehicle charging. Right now though, this, this seems to work okay. And really with that period when we saw a lot of folks buying vehicles, it was the fact that there were a lot of Nissan Leafs coming off a three-year lease, so they can get them for pretty cheap and they're bringing them in. There's a little bit of lull around you know, 2018 to 2020 and in the rate of adoption. And now we see, you know, the number of vehicles uh, growing again pretty rapidly as more vehicles are available. And I think, uh, again, you know, 20,000 passenger vehicles, the vehicles themselves don't use a ton of energy. They actually use less energy per month on average than, and, uh, than like a domestic hot water heater. Uh, so we see about 300 kilowatt hours a month is seems to be a pretty normal amount of energy consumption. So if we were to if we were to have the entire fleet of passenger vehicles in Juneau um, convert to electric, what we would be you know we would be selling electric vehicles about as much energy each year as we currently sell to our largest customer, the Greens Creek Mine. Yeah, that's interesting. And actually, it was, I think our, our brains were thinking along the same lines there, because I was thinking as you were talking about what would happen if every vehicle in Juno over time became electric and how that would make, you know, required changes to your system. But it seems like that load might be a little less than what an average person might think it would be. Because when I think of 20,000 EVs plugging in, I think, my gosh, that's got to be a huge load. But perhaps that's not all that accurate. Well, it, it could be a lot of load if they're all plugging in at the same time, but the total energy that they require is not great. And I think one of the things to remember is that our vehicles sit for more than 95% of the hours in a day. And so there's a lot of opportunity to charge if you have the charging available. You don't need to charge quickly as long as you have the ability to charge where your vehicle is stationary. And I think so as we see more of this focus, we have seen a lot of focus right now with the NEVI program um, and some of these other federal programs that are coming out to expand EV charging networks. They're really aimed at range anxiety in you know, interstate systems in the lower 48, not so much the day-to-day the -day growth of EVs and the, and the real kind of the, that at-home charging that is the, the preferred charging for EV owners. Um, especially in places where range anxiety is not an issue. So over time, I'm hopeful that we'll see more distributed kind of low power charging available where people can just kind of always manage their batteries on their vehicles and not put those really big, you know, eight kW loads or, or higher if it's at level three charging 
um, but can charge more on the lower 120 volt trickle charge type level, but do it more constantly to, to manage the battery. Yeah, it seems like in a place like Juno, like we talked about with the uh, low number of road miles, any modern EV could easily get you from your home to work and back without being without being recharged at work or somewhere in town. You could easily just go back home and recharge it when you get home, correct? That's correct. And, you know, so like with my uh, Bolt, my wife and I, we have we have three kids all in activities. So we're cruising around all the time, driving back and forth to different activities. We'll have one kid downtown in soccer, one kid in swimming, that sort of thing. So we are putting quite a few miles on this vehicle, like way more than seems <laughs> seem to be uh, <laughs> necessary in a town where you can't drive in and out, right? But uh, but we're using probably between 10 and 15 kilowatt hours a day on average. And our charger will charge that vehicle at, you know, around eight to nine kW. So it really only takes, you know, a little over two hours for us to charge our vehicle to the level that we need. And we don't even charge it to 100%. So the vehicle has a max range of around 230 miles, but uh, we definitely never drive that much in one day. So there are days where we forget to plug it in and that's not a problem because we have enough charge for the next day. And that's even though we've already set up the vehicle to only charge to about 80% each day. Here, you know, being in in Alaska and other parts that aren't, you know, have quite a long distance of road miles between, you know, destinations. Do you have any thoughts? I know you're a Genoite, but do you have any thoughts on, you know, perhaps up here in South Central about how um, people could successfully drive an EV around if they're, you know, on the road system, maybe in Anchorage or the Masu Valley or something like that? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, as, as the technology grows i think that we'll find that eventually we'll have these vehicles that get the longer distance range uh, that allows us to move more freely between communities that are separated by a great distance uh, if you live in a place that allows for that which i don't but yeah a lot of people do and so that's one thing is that there's still you know there's still technology advancements that are going to make these uh a more of a one-for-one -one swap with our current gas powered or diesel powered vehicles uh, I know my house, though, we have one EV and one pickup truck. We still use a, a gas-powered pickup truck to haul our boat and do that sort of thing. So for us, if we were to, say, want to go take the ferry up to Skagway and drive up to Whitehorse, we're not going to take the Bolt, most likely. We're going to take the pickup truck. Yeah, it definitely seems right now in Alaska, there's there's a balance. I know folks in, you know, I live in Palmer. I know folks there who have an EV to commute down to Anchorage and back for work every day, but then they have that truck if they're going to go out to, you know, uh, McCarthy or they're going to go tow their boat up to Fairbanks or something like that. And so it seems like at this time, there's kind of the Alaska ways. We, we're planners up here in Alaska, so maybe you plan your vehicle choices depending on what you're going to do. But I have read some very fascinating um, articles about where, people expect, uh, where experts expect EV technology to go. And it seems like there could be a time in the future where electric vehicles could handle all the, the needs of, of, of Alaskans and, and, you know, charge very quickly. So I think that day is probably coming in the future. Yeah, I would think so. We, you know, one of the challenges too with uh, driving in cold weather climates is that, uh, at least with the battery technology that we have right now, as you, as temperature goes down, the batteries aren't able to to hold as much charge, and then the uh, and then more of the uh, energy stored in the battery has to be used for heating, um, 
And that that definitely reduces the range in the wintertime. You know, depending on where you're at, how cold you are, that varies what type of vehicle you have and how they manage the uh, the climate control for the batteries itself. But uh, so there's a lot of factors that go into how much how much reduction in range you see at low temperatures. But but ultimately there is a reduction in range. And so in some cases, like with uh, larger transit vehicles and things like that, like Juno has a an electric bus, I think they included a diesel heater to, you know, just just burn that diesel for for heat and leave the energy stored in the battery for driving around. Interesting. Okay, well, in the time we have left, I have two questions because you're both an EV owner and uh, the CEO of an electric utility that powers these EVs. So, as an EV owner, what would you say to somebody who does not yet own an EV but they're about to they're about to purchase one? What sort of advice would you have for that person who's just about to become an EV owner? I would say really think about what your what kind of time you need. Think about where your vehicle is going to be parked, how long it's going to be parked there, and buy the lowest power charger that you need because the reality is you can drive up the cost of the installation of that circuit to supply your charger by you know so so like for instance a ford lightning you can get that you can get a ford lightning with with a huge charger and uh but that's really probably not necessary at all for the vast majority of people unless you are draining that battery every day and they need a really quick recharge time at home or something along those lines, you probably only need a pretty small, you know, somewhere between three and six kW charger in order to meet your needs. Okay, and so as a CEO of electric utility, if there's any other electric utilities listening right now, what would you say to them as if they're in an area where EVs haven't really taken off, but they're about to take off, what sort of advice would you give an electric utility to prepare for the, uh, the coming EV tide, so to speak? I would say that uh, the charger, making chargers easily uh, accessible to those owners, to those folks who are on the fence about buying an EV or about to buy an EV, or maybe already have and are just trying to figure out how to charge. Uh, the, the thing that has been probably most popular with the programs that we have available is the ability to access a charger quickly. People can, we have them in stock, people can call us up and we can deliver a charger to their home that day. And that has been something that our customers have appreciated very, very much. Yeah, that's always um, kind of interesting. If you can get the tools, it seems like, or people know that the tools to uh, to power those EVs are readily available, it might make them make the jump and, and go ahead and get an EV. Yeah, it, you know, it's like a lot of things. You know, the easier you make the decision, the more likely somebody is going to make the purchase. Great. Well, Alec, it's been real interesting. I see I see where from where we stand and talking to our electric utility members across the state that are in Alaska Power Association's membership that EVs are definitely coming. And, you know, Alaska is kind of different than other states. We have a lot of different uh, aspects to consider when it comes to the vehicle that you drive. But it just seems judging by talking to our folks in the electric utility industry that um, they're coming and they're coming quick. Yeah, I think it's a, and it's a good thing for a lot of folks. It's it's uh, a low cost uh, often for for the owner of the vehicle, uh, a lot of reduced maintenance. You know, think about uh, isolated communities, uh, not having to deal with waste oil disposal and that sort of thing because you no longer have to do oil changes. There, there are a lot of advantages in many different places in Alaska, even in remote locations. Well, we'll keep our eyes to the road and see how many EVs we see uh, around the state over time. So, Alec, thanks a lot for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me.
We've been talking with Alec Mesdeg, the president and CEO of Alaska Electric Light and Power in Juneau. I'm Michael Ravito. This has been the Alaska Powerline podcast, and we'll see you on the next episode, everyone. Thank you.